Today I'm talking to Alexandra Kleeman, the author of the new novel, Something New Under the Sun, as well as Intimations, a short story collection, and her previous novel, You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, which was a New York Times editor's choice. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and Guernica, among other publications, and her other writing has appeared in Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, Vogue, Tin House, N Plus One, and The Guardian. She is the winner of the Berlin Prize and the Bard Fiction Prize and was a Rome Prize Literature Fellow at the American Academy in Rome. She lives in Staten Island and teaches at the New School. In Something New Under the Sun, East Coast novelist Patrick Hamlin has come to Hollywood with simple goals in mind, overseeing the production of a film adaptation of one of his books, preventing Starlet Cassidy Carter's disruptive behavior from derailing said production and turning this last-ditch effort at career resuscitation into the sort of success that will dazzle his wife and daughter back home. But California is not as he imagined. Drought, wildfire, and corporate corruption are omnipresent, and the company behind a mysterious new brand of synthetic water seems to be at the root of it all. Patrick partners with Cassidy after having been her reluctant chauffeur for weeks, and the two of them investigate the sun-scorched city's darker crevices, where they discover that catastrophe resembles order until the last possible second. In this often witty and all-too-timely story, Alexandra Kleeman grapples with the corruption of our environment in the age of alternative facts. Something new under the sun is a meticulous and deeply felt account of our very human anxieties liabilities, dependencies, and ultimately responsibility to truth. Hi, Alexandra. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I read that you were intent on writing a novel that captured more of a mood rather than one that describes sort of a straightforward plot. I feel that this is certainly achieved in this novel. Your prose is wildly impressive, detailing a particular energy one often encounters in California-based, you know, gold rush novels. I'm thinking of John Fonte or even one of my very first younger experiences reading Steinbeck's East of Eden. In fact, I found myself thinking of East of Eden a lot in this novel. I also know that a lot of this book is thinking through a contemporary issue of climate change. So there's this nod to the past. You can let me know if if I'm misreading there. And then it's placement in the present. So my question is, are you nostalgic about a kind of fiction that maybe doesn't exist anymore? Um, That's a really great question. I think that um, I don't have a lot of nostalgia for types of fiction, waves of fiction, movements that come before. I'm happy they exist. Um, But I tend to think of... um, those sorts of novels as almost a genre in and of themselves. And um, if this book is a mishmash of different genres, if it has sort of science fiction elements, detective novel elements, Hollywood novel elements, um, the overall container that's built in is um, like a little mission that I sometimes call privately in my head while writing, um, Alexander Cleveland writes a realist novel, <laughs> um, w- which is not <laughs> always a thing that comes naturally to me, but um it, it seemed important to use the realist novel structure and take it into a place where it breaks down narratively. Um, 
because I, I too want to see what comes next and I want to see what type of narrative forms and um, uh, techniques we need to deal with describing the world that is coming for us. It's true that your prior works are not, um, you know, they're more abstract. They're not as direct real. This is maybe your more realistic novel yet, which is also saying something because it's it's a it's quite surrealist at the same time. Um, but it's interesting hearing you say that you're interested to see if you can do that because it's not what you normally do. You do it so well. <laughs> is it something that you're like hesitant to? to embark on? Was this an effort to challenge yourself doing this book? Yeah, uh, I, I think I've always been a person who's, um, after she's made something, been so terrified of the prospect of someone expecting me to make it again, that I have to push myself in another direction. And I admire writers like, I think Ben Marcus is a person like this, who start out doing something that may be very difficult, but also may be very natural to them, and then push against um, the sort of formal strictures of the very experimental thing that is natural to them. So that in his career, he's grown into writing um, much more recognizably realistic characters, writing sort of domestic fiction, writing fiction about emotions that even if they're transposed to a different location, um, an imagined location are very real and recognizable. It almost, um, it could almost be an emotion from a Franzen novel, you know? And, um, as I am interested in questioning sort of what reality is, how much we see of it, how we can achieve that feeling of being in contact with it. And, um, when we achieve that contact, whether it feels realistic or whether it feels like a breakdown in, in, in the normal structure of our lives. Um, I really felt that I had to work with some of these tools to, to build backstory for characters, to build um, a surround for the characters that felt like it could be concrete, could be handleable. Um, so that when it starts to slip away from them, there's a, a, a feeling of loss, a feeling that something's been broken or um, can't be retrieved anymore. Um, so that's the main challenge I pose to myself in doing this, I think. Um, and, you know, I know that this is an interview about this book, but I'm thinking about uh, what challenges I'm going to pose to myself in the next one, too. And it, it might be something more like um, I'm sort of challenging myself to write a utopian novel, which is the opposite in some ways and not so different in other ways from a dystopian novel. So um, I'll get back to you. That's so delightful. That on how that's turned out. <laughs> that's so delightful. I can't think of the last contemporary utopian novel. Can you? Can you think of a point of reference even? Um, no, we live in such an age of dystopias, which somehow has not prevented our world from getting more and more dystopic. So um, <laughs> I really think that. Uh, you know, the ways in which literature can intervene with the political and, and with our sense of what's possible in, in the world um, uh, has often been used to marshal sort of fear and apprehension and show us um, how bad things could get, what we could lose. Um, but more and more, I find myself hungering for these models of some other way that life could be, some other um, 
thing we could do, uh, some other values that we could place at the center of how our societies are constructed. And, and to do that, I think it really requires not a return to the utopian novels of the past, which are often pretty stiff or pretty funny to read. Um, but people uh, giving visions that allow you to imagine another possibility for the world or, um, you know, prod you to invent your own to go alongside it. I'm too excited now to, to like think about how you're going to drive this narrative where everything's great, <laughs> which um, <laughs> is going to be really, really fascinating. I mean, I'm sure you're going to accomplish it, but um, my interest is extremely peaked. Um, I want to talk a little bit more on your prose, which again, I, I can't emphasize just uh, how impressive I found it to be. You shift fluidly through scenes, you know, ongoing crossover locations and situations and even specific times throughout the novel. It's a bit dizzying, but there's that, again, East of Eden feeling again. I really felt so young again reading this book in a very specific way. Um, The reader leaves Patrick in a car with Cassidy only to find themselves with Patrick's wife and their child Nora on a spiritual retreat merely a paragraph later. There's this real smoothness Mm -hmm. in which you transition. It's almost like there's an actual aerial view of the world you construct Almost literally, you know, sometimes you shift the fictional camera or lens onto an animal sitting alone in a patch of dirt or grass in the mountains. My question is, what do you think this shifting of scenes accomplishes? Yeah, I mean, um, I love that question. And it's a question I asked myself a lot while writing because I am naturally um, a minimalist. I think I think I'm naturally a person who... Um, is comfortable inhabiting the very subjective space of an eye, even if um, that viewpoint is limiting or or colored by that eye's, you know, gaze out into the world. Um, but in writing a third person novel, I think that it really opened up a space where I could think about um, what uh, is inhuman about narrative, what is, um, I don't want to say superhuman, um, but how the mobility of narrative and the mobility of a third person gaze that is um, sort of imagined and sort of cast outside of an individual perspective could show us more and decenter both the human as a perspective and individual characters, you know, um, I, I think there are moments in our everyday lives where we, uh, feel so embedded in their own problems and viewpoints. And then you come into contact with another person and they jar you violently out of it into their own perspective or into, um, just some other vocabulary, you know, of, of life that you hadn't been carrying around with you. Um, that is, on the one hand, I think sometimes viewed as like a formal disruption. Um, It's more challenging to keep up with where the narrative eye is and with the fact that it can move from the West Coast to the East Coast, um, sort of within a single paragraph. Um, But I think that it's very true to how our lives actually are, especially in a time when um, we can communicate so quickly. Across vast distances, and when we can uh, 
have access to information and images and some of the the traces of presence um, uh, that belong to places that we've never set foot in. You know, it really it changes um, the way that we're epistemologically situated in the world. And I think that um, you almost require a third person perspective or a first person that's willing to break the usual boundaries of individuality to get at that feeling um, that we live in this vastly expanded, partially virtual hybrid space, even as our bodies sit in, you know, highway traffic on our long commute. You know, yeah, she says, as I'm sitting in my kitchen and you are in (laughs) another city and I'm looking at a screen and interacting with you. Absolutely. There's this sort of disassociation about it. But I'm wondering if you were trying to mess with the reader, (laughs) if you wanted to create this sort of like dizzying. I I mean, you've already answered the question. I I see your motives and what you're curious and exploring. But is, is that something that played a part in it? Were you trying to you know, spin the reader a bit, spin them around? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, uh, to incorporate some of the affects of like living in this time, I think that we, um, often have the experience of talking to another person across, um, geographical boundaries across, um, uh, boundaries of uh, sort of emotional landscape, affective landscape. Um, For example, you know, when we first got on this call, we were talking about how um, I'm in the Pacific Northwest and I'm wearing um, a jacket, which actually seems, it would have been unimaginable to me at any other point in the summer that I would put on this like jacket, you know? (laughs) Um, uh, And even last week in the Pacific Northwest, when we were having this massive heat wave, like going up to 108 degrees, I couldn't imagine that later in time, I would be able to feel comfortable putting on more clothing, you know? Right. Um, uh, Sometimes I've been speaking to people when my physical location has been sort of in an emergency state, like a heat wave or, um, quite close to wildfires driving through um, an area that's uncomfortably close to wildfire smoke. I have a Mm -hmm. tracker on my phone um, that maps fires and their degree of containment. um, Mm -hmm. And we use it when plotting our trip from Colorado to the West coast. Um, uh, It's amazing. I think how, how closely synced we can be, for conversation, for um, information transmission, for exchange, and then how different, how wildly different our surroundings can be. Um, And I think that that sort of um, span in communication that's not just geographical, but that also is like the communication between a a person who's in an area of crisis and a person who's in an area of- psychological, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a psychological stretch, and it's one that I think we have to you know increase our flexibility on if we're going to adapt to um, uh, an upcoming era that's just rife with um, natural disasters and catastrophes of all kinds. 
On page 17, a character named The Arm says, you can't repair an appetite, you can only feed it or ignore it. With that in mind, do you think an appetite is the same as hunger? The idea being that hunger is a is a need, whereas appetite is more of a want. And I, I guess I was thinking about the ways in which yeah. this book in particular investigates like this this kind of unhappiness is very um in its in all its characters, including including the characters that more clearly reveal themselves to be sort of bad guys. Um I think I'm trying to ask if there's a distinction between hunger and appetite and if there is maybe one can actually be satiated and the other can't. Yeah, it, that's such a big question. It's such a good question. And I feel like it's one that cuts across this book and my previous book, because I've always been interested in, um, you know, w- which desires could be said to originate from your deepest self, from your body, um, which are things that are kind of plants, you know, like um, uh, the the desire for um, commercial products for like a, a particular iPhone or gadget, the sleekness of it, the way that it compels you, um, versus like a thing that your body physically needs. Like, um, right. I'm even thinking about when, uh, when you're sure on certain minerals, like the urge to eat dirt or, um, eat ice or like salt or things like that. Like there are, deep um sort of knowledges within the body that tell us what we need but there are also a lot of um uh internalized uh appetites i think we carry around with us and in um you too can have a body like mine i think that um i was interested in you know what's the difference between um hunger and desire what's the difference between nourishment and satisfaction um and all of these sort of urges that are very difficult to articulate in words sometimes, but which really um, can be modified by what you put concretely into your body, um, by what you take in and how it affects and changes you. In this book, um, I, I think that none of my characters really know how um, know that they're investigating their own desires, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. I think that Allison, Patrick's wife, has the most direct connection to that sort of a, a thing where she feels like an indelible sadness and um, and yearning for some other way of life, like to live a good life or a harmless life or um, just a life that uh, feels maybe less touched by disaster. Um, and then the question for her is, you know, whether what she's getting and going to this eco-commune Earth Bridge where they mourn the losses of the world all the time, um, whether it's actually satisfying that urge or whether it's just uh, an empty calorie substitute for that, I think. Um, I think that in that quote that you read, like uh, the arm doesn't really have, <laughs> he doesn't really have um the right idea about it. Like, I don't know if I would agree with what he said, but it is something that I might say. And um, if we recognize that some of our appetites are appetites for success or advancement or um, other things like that are 
somewhat foreign to us, if they have a history within us and weren't there the whole time, um, they can be modified. They can be changed or replaced or um, otherwise rethought. And that to me is the avenue that's more hopeful that it doesn't currently exist in his worldview. Because of the very cinematic way that this book reads, it had me thinking about the popularity. I'm actually always thinking about this, the popularity of book to film adaptations that's been especially going on in the last few years um, and how each form enhances or limits a story. So while it feels to me like you wrote a very successful novel, it also feels to me like you wrote a very successful film. And I mean, literally, if someone wanted to try to adapt this to screen, you've laid out so much in this novel, the stage directions, the cuts and edits for them in so many ways. Is this indicative of a love of film you have that you were trying to translate on page? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that I do love the way that... um, films seem compressed sometimes relative to a novel. I think that you have room to spin out in a novel in a way that you don't have in a film because the pressure is on you at every moment to um, show each page of your screenplay working towards some goal, you know? And um, I both really admire that. Like in a way, I'm so attracted to optimization (laughs) and in a way I'm so terrified of optimization too. uh, I spent some time um, working on TV pitches with a friend of mine who is a really wonderful TV writer. And um, again, that process was very alluring in some ways, this constant language of um, can this language be beaten? Can this plot point be beaten? Can this character be better? You know? Um, and when you think like that, it's uh it's exciting too, because there's this radical plasticity to the story. The story is always yearning to be something more than it is and, and to be something tighter and uh, more powerful in, in whatever way. Um, on the other hand, uh, I have such a tenderness for, in the process of writing, some of these details that come to you about a character, a detail that comes to you about a story. And it doesn't necessarily play a functional role, but there are these moments where you think that you're seeing like unbidden and unforced, just a piece of this world you're describing. And and those things, it's often hard to justify them. So um, I think that I tried to use some of the formal muscle (laughs) of storytelling in film, like um, thinking about, how to keep things moving, how to hold yourself accountable to plot and how to um, create a feeling of tightness, but then also sneak in a lot of um, things that I just think are important to build into the world that uh, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not going to claim that everything about it worked, but um, can you create a container for some of these difficult to define and unusual affective moments by hooking them up to um, a a powerful machine. Yeah. Um, I'm still thinking about how I feel about that, about hybrid. Yeah. So there is a blend of the different forms here that's going on in this novel. I'm not crazy. (laughs) um, That is sort of going on, right? I, I just, I wanted your confirmation that 
there yes, is this yeah. very cinematic universe, but it at the same time, it's obviously not a film. It's a book. I very much was reading like a novel in my hands, but there was such a cinematic element to everything and not just because obviously it takes place in the actual world of, you know, studios and, and stars and things like that. Um, there's just this way that you were telling the story that I almost, <laughs> okay, I shouldn't say this, but I almost would be mad if this gets turned to a movie. I mean, obviously I wish you the greatest <laughs> success and all authors are doing this, but, um, and I'm sure it would be brilliant as well, but it's it's you you've done the work for them is where I think I would find resentment <laughs> a little bit and often a lot of authors do and I do feel that um, the the film world does kind of like piggyback onto that and then they they ha- they have a whole new form adapted to it and and I was I think like I said I think about this all the time but I was very much thinking about that with this book um, as it stands alone yeah it, it might be a little redundant to turn it into a film. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I love a adaptation that makes something different out of it. You know, I think that um, to to really give a thing life, to give an adaptation life, you should take in your source material and like digest it and metabolize it and make it part of something else. Like I think that um, a burning that Korean film is an incredible example of that because if you read the Murakami short story, like it's much lighter. It's got his chatty conversational realm. And then someone turned it into this, this noir that just like seethes with undiscussed sort of violence and confrontation. Um, Yeah. I, I, I love it. And I think that, um, you know, that's the most, exciting way to turn one story into another because you'll never see the exact thing as an author that you saw in your head on screen um but it would be really cool to see another thing that you kind of recognize and resonate with (sighs) you know i see all of the structural reasons like and and logistical reasons to use a sort of tighter cinematic style too and i was interested in trying it out but i also think that there's um something about the idea of tightness and efficacy and things like that, that um, really contribute to continuing to direct our attention to certain aspects of the world and not others. So um, in a lot of ways, my favorite parts of the book are these baggier parts. You can find them in films too. Um, And I think a little bit of how much I was affected probably by um, the opening of Blue Velvet, the David Lynch movie, Mm. where you kind of, start out in the grass with the movement of these bugs around um, uh, uh, a world that then returns to the surface level and shows you people and stories you sort of recognize. But just um, a work that acknowledges there's another world there that's not so tight, that's not so narrative, that's not um, so easy to perceive and make sense of um, is something that I really love. Like, I think that... um, uh, my favorite move is the, the move where the camera swings away from what it's supposed to be looking at and shows you something else that's there. Yeah, that happens a lot in this book. 
it also ties into the sub stories and inner worlds you create in the novel. For instance, you have the superstar Cassidy Carter and these intermittent references to an online message board that continues to break down conspiracy theories about one of her most iconic TV shows. You literally write out what looks like uh, Reddit threads in doing so. What drives your interest in conspiracy theories and more specifically in double meanings? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by conspiracy theories, even if um, in this day and age where they seem less like counterfactual stories that you tell to, you know, exercise your mental muscles and, and, and think through something that is interesting to you. They, they seem a little bit more like weaponized and dangerous things. Um, I love the way in which a rereading of what's there on the surface can fundamentally like uh, show you a different narrative and can um, uh, make you feel like you're not so familiar with uh, the world that's around you. So as a sort of denaturalization technique, as um, a way of uh, using the muscle of narrative to reorder and, um, and confuse your surroundings, I think that it's really interesting. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, I'm fascinated by the way that conspiracy thinking has emerged in the last few years. Like it's so much more in the foreground. It inspires people to do dangerous and violent things in the public sphere. It's, um, it's a sort of difficult to pin down force that's actually shaping, um, our, our life in the public sphere. And um, I wanted to bring it into the book in a couple ways. Like, I think the first is um, the emotions that drive conspiracy theory are, are so interesting to me because um, it's kind of a wish for greater order in the world than actually exists. Like, I, oh, I believe yeah. that our biggest problems. I love that. I love thinking about um, it like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you want a structured and causal solution, like a band of actors who are really realizing their vision. Um, and what we have instead are something more like, um, like a loose group of actors motivated by the same ideology, which is, unsatisfying as an explanation for why we are where we are, but I, I think that it is the truest one. So um, in what ways is conspiracy thinking a kind of wish fulfillment? Um, in what ways does it give you a sense of of power and that bird's eye view that we covet, even though we understand that um, it's an illusion as well? And um, I am also fascinated too by the fact that people would rather search deep for um, a cause and search deep for a villain when we can see so many examples of bad actors operating out in plain sight, you know, um, whether it's a company not cleaning up the oil spill that they caused and not uh, following up on that, or, um, you know, countless CEOs buying um properties to flee to in Greenland or New Zealand or wherever it may be. Um, these are things that you can read in the news and yet they don't hit the same spot 
the same satisfying spot or scratch the same itch as inventing a sort of shadow network of actors who are trying to do something in the background. Um, why is it uh, less charged when people commit crimes in the foreground out in the open? So um, everybody talking on the conspiracy theory, like Reddit type boards about the hidden meaning and bigger meaning of um, Cassie Carter's teen detective series, Cassie Keene, Kid Detective. Um, they, they are all, um, you know, kind of motivated by a sense that something's not right in the world, whether it's the world of the series or whether they believe that the series offers clues to a crime that's been committed in the actual world. Um, they're driven by an affect I think is affecting a lot of the different characters in this book. Um, and yet they would rather discourse than um, sort of look around them. And I think that, <laughs> I think it's just honestly like a funny and interesting and comedic um, fact about the way we inhabit reality too. Um, there's also a lot of thinking through of randomness, unlikelihood, and sp sort of spontaneity in the novel. Um, there's a passage uh, from page 167, a meditation from a character named Horseshoe, where um, it starts with America is the land of the amateur. Would you mind reading that passage, page 167? <laughs> yeah. America is the land of the amateur, he begins. The garage inventor, the jamboree dancer. The people no longer wish to watch expert chefs compete against expert chefs creating intricate log jams of meat and vegetables. If you give uncooked food to an expert chef, all you get is expertly cooked food. We've seen it a million times. But if you give it to a retired truck driver with a heartbreaking story, an eight-year-old child with a passion for battleships, who knows what could happen? What could they discover in that reality show pantry? What could you discover in their discovery? The surprise of success is a miracle. The possibility of failure is an aphrodisiac. What if a real estate agent doodling random lines and triangles on the floor plan of a house were to independently recreate the discovery of the Euler line? Are you more amazed to see a beautiful flower growing in the Los Angeles County Arboretum and Botanical Gardens? Or from a trash heap by the side of the freeway where cars slow down as they take the off-ramp? A glacier white lily the size of a baby's head, its vivid green stalk reaching up toward the sky from out of the mouth of a can of monster energy drink. <laughs> I love I love horseshoe <laughs> in general, but um, <laughs> I, um, I, I I really enjoyed reading uh, that passage. Um, and then there was one particular phrase that stuck out to me the surprise of success is a miracle the possibility possibility of failure is an aphrodisiac okay i'm i'm well aware of how this is going to sound but is there a possibility that climate change is almost exciting and i know how dark that sounds you know this idea that we would be we should be exhilarated by the awful way we've treated our home like obviously it's terrible but in this thinking horseshoe presents yeah. <laughs> There's this implication that, the, you know, <laughs> with creation, with the Big Bang, it's thrilling inherently because of the possibilities of its success and its failures. And just with the themes of the book, I felt myself thinking about, you know, the actual Earth. Um, and so I wanted to ask you that very dark, but maybe beautiful question. I don't know. 
Oh my God. I think that's so great. Like, and I think that you really put your finger on, on something about like, um, this societal drive for failure and like, um, destruction that I, I do think, um, is one of the main forces that compels us. Another force could be something like the desire for entertainment, the desire for, for like the thrill of speed and, and, and satisfaction of it, even if there's a possibility of a crash there too. And, um, you know, uh, I think that a really interesting thing about like our possible desire drive for entertainment drive to be entertained is that you could say that a lot of what we've created and in terms of global warming and climate change has been created by our desire to to have things happen faster, to have things um, happen um, bigger and brighter. And um, in some ways, like to have our lives more closely resemble the cut-ups of lives we've made in movies and things where you go from one place to another super quickly. Like it, it's no longer um, a world where we're content to travel for three weeks to get across the Atlantic. Like we want to be across there in three hours, five hours, a jump cut, you know? Um, And then at the same time, you know, I think a lot about um, the short story I read when I was too young to read it. My mother is a a Japanese literature professor and she always always had a lot of um, interesting, dark, and sometimes very deeply weird um, books in her office I would go and borrow. Um, And I remember one short story written by this writer called Sakyo Komatsu um, that I read in a collection of Japanese science fiction. Uh, It was called something like Choose Your Path. And it, the premise was that um, a businessman comes into this little storefront and um, uh, checks in shyly at the desk and they go, oh, okay, um, let me offer you the three choices. And at the end, you'll tell us which you want to pursue. Um, and first he sees a door open and he sees a vision of a world um, that is beautiful, futuristic, flying cars, the whole deal, a very utopian and clean place. The second is a dystopian future, a a city that's futuristic, but gritty, falling apart, dark and disheveled, and clearly um, a place where suffering happens in equal measure to, you know, the elites sort of pleasure and success. The third is a a door that opens to show just a massive um, bomb destroying the city. Uh, And he thinks it over and he says, I'll choose the third one. And the employee sort of says, okay, well, you've chosen the third, you've set the course for a future and and you're one of the lucky ones who will know what happens. and when he leaves, we see it's all a hoax. It's just three different videos behind screens. It's a cinematic illusion. But the employee talks to another employee and says, you know, I know what we're doing is just a scam, but don't you find it disturbing that so many people choose the third one? These people are politicians, they're businessmen, they're people who are shaping the future. So why do they always choose it? And the story kind of ends on that question. Um, but I do think there's something about this desire to know, this desire for control and this desire to be 
entertained to see the thing happen rather than just worry about it and imagine it that um, provides um, a, a counterpoint to our desire to avert disaster. Like I think these things struggle in us. And I think that um, even if we're afraid of the end, we're also fascinated by it and, and drawn to it in a way that cannot possibly be good for us. <laughs> I, I mean, I always say a good story is a good story. It's, it's, I think that's just always going to be true. This question also comes from a consideration of how there's also a lot of thinking through of interconnectivity in the novel. If it hadn't been for this, would these characters be here? Would they have met? Um, there's even a hint of like, I don't know if the correct term is magical realism, but there is some surreal, um, you know, moments in the book and so far as Patrick's daughter I'm thinking specifically while living you know on in another city um often acknowledges these various premonitions she has of her father um I guess I'm wondering what your what your what you think of this idea of like mercurial connectivity I, I'm wondering what you were working out and working through these ideas and putting these characters uh in these sort of links that we could never really confirm in, in our offline, offline life. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that what I really wanted with, um, Patrick's daughter, Nora, who has these visions that are sometimes visions of the past or near future, or it seems like far future. Also, they could also just be the, overactive imagination of like a nine-year-old kid um, was to have someone who exists sort of in a different temporal causal plane from the other characters. Um, she's the character I put the, the most of my sort of um tempered optimism about the future into because she's someone who clearly doesn't find her father's solutions for how to cope with the world um, plausible or acceptable or satisfying. And she doesn't find her mother's either like this familiar retreat um, to another place. Cause you were asking about um, Nora and her visions and this sort of um, funny way that some of the characters connect with each other across time and and space and um there are some almost magical causalities there too every once in a while i think that i wanted for uh nora's character to symbolize someone who's kind of outside of the set and selection of viewpoints that are available to most of the characters like she is drawing some knowledge or some intuition from another place and um this can sometimes seem like the overactive imagination of a nine-year-old child um, when she talks about, you know, a future of very large dogs roaming the landscape. Um, but also she sometimes has visions of things that come to pass later on in the book. Um, so I wanted her, maybe it doesn't seem hopeful to other people, but she is a hopeful point in the book for me because she clearly sees outside of the options available to the other characters. She doesn't find her father's solution to living in the world satisfying. She doesn't hold the same values as him. 
she doesn't find her mother's like retreat to Earthbridge, this sort of way of leaving behind the world that I think you see over and over again in, in the environmental movement and, and other things. She just doesn't find it a plausible or satisfactory response. Um, she's got some other response that she's putting together. And I think it's going to be really interesting, whatever it is, it's outside the scope of the book, but um, it's, it's the thing that, you know, we can only intuit now that there's something really cool in this generation um, that's coming that might offer a way out of our different aporias, you know. There's also a lot of thinking through of interpers interpersonal relationships, uh, interpersonal responsibility. Um, and as a result, it, it made me think about like social responsibility. I'm pulling a sentence completely without context, but there is a point in the novel where a character thinks looking for Patrick is the human thing to do, or does she mean humane? There's a distinction made here between mm -hmm. what we're predisposed to do and what is kind to do. In the of like the apocalyptic and evolutionary themes in this book, and especially with the knowledge that you are working on a potentially utopian novel, do you think there's a way we're predisposed to be kind? Yes, like I, I think that um, to be human is a very beautiful thing. A lot of the times, I think that we're predisposed to love and, and be kind and be connected. Um, and unfortunately, we're also predisposed to be <laughs> distanced and um, alienated and, and have a capacity for cruelty or thoughtlessness, you know, that um, both of these things sort of define the horizon of our, our behavior. And by extension, like they define the horizon of the world we can imagine, you know. Um, I think that, uh, from a place of cruelty, you find it very difficult to imagine um, a kind world or a world that is is powered by care and mutuality. Um, and yet those possibilities still do exist. Um, I think that, you know, when I think about a utopian narrative, the important thing is not that all problems are solved because weirdly, I think that we are very attached to our problems. Um, uh, we're attached to drama. We're attached to this feeling like I, I wish there were a single word for it. There probably is in, in German or Chinese or <laughs> there um, always is in German. Korean. <laughs> yes, I know they, they will make a word. They will forge a word that represents it. <laughs> they have to. Um, the feeling that something could happen, you know, um, a lot of people have described this, like when they talk about moving to New York, they were like, it just felt like anything could happen on the street, walking around um, with the next person that you met. And um, that feeling is not always positive. Sometimes it's a feeling of intense anxiety and vulnerability, but I think that um, we are like addicted to that feeling. And, and so, um, I sort of want to show that you can have uh, you can have that feeling, you can have that openness to your life, and the sense that it could change. There could be um, the same sort of potentiality, even in a non-capitalist or pre-capitalist or far post-capitalist setting. Um, but 
you know, I'm still working my way, like muddling through <laughs> what that looks like. Um, but, you know, it's a big question. I think one it's most important question. function <laughs> of, yeah. <laughs> Um, I think one politically important function of literature could be to show us um, more clearly the world we live in, to articulate a problem that's not visible, but I think it should also provide us with other options and, and other visions, you know. Thank you so much. The prose really is so magnetic and breathtaking that I, I, I want to kind of leave listeners who, again, might be future readers of this book, as is so often the case, you know, future St. Henry books customers, um, of what I mean. Would you mind leaving us with the reading of the paragraph that starts with um, the animals on page 325? Yes, yes. This is from the last chapter. The animals have no eyes and no ears. They hear with their bodies, each presence a touch. Plant-like fronds rooted in clay, waving in noiseless motion. Flower-like faces, pliant fingers fanned out around an open mouth. Some crawl across the seafloor a centimeter a day, flat and disc-shaped, mistaken for a shadow on the sand. Heaven could be a fiction told about this place. Light soaks the water as living tufts stray into the tendrils of medusas, floating in and out of life. Everything is soft here, and death has the roundness of an embrace. A worm-shaped thing crawling the seabed reaches a colorful polyp and begins to pull it into its mouth. A sensation like tearing travels through the blossom-like body, flashing with lingering bursts of fear. The flesh moves, quivers, folds inward as it is pulled into another's body tube and severed from existence. The pain is a buzzing in the air, not a scream, less like dying and more like coming undone. Beautiful. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and I encourage our customers and our listeners to check out uh, this latest novel. It's a treat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you and, and so honored to be on Weird Era.